Good morning. Welcome to Jay's Talk Plus. Jay's win. Jay's win. 4-3 against the White Sox. Fun one. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. coming up big time. If you missed it, Jay's struggled a little bit to put some offense on the board early on. Shocker, right? They uh, they had a little trouble getting going against Lucas Giolito. Uh, they eventually, in the fourth inning, loaded the bases up. Whit Merrifield cashed in two with a double. Uh, Chris Black and I discussed yesterday, you know, some of the batting order things and, and how you may tweak it or, or may not tweak it. And one of the issues Chris raised was that this is kind of a slow Jays team and they haven't been a very effective base running team. When we look at some of the base running metrics, well, having Brandon Bell and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. next to each other in the lineup uh, is great for the hitting and drawing walk side of things. Less so uh, for the base passing. Now, Merrifield hit that double pretty hard down the line. Maybe Matt Chapman doesn't have a chance to score uh, anyway, or, or it's too close to play and you just don't risk it. But uh, with Belt and Guerrero on the bases uh, ahead of him, there wasn't much chance of taking that risk anyway. But that's the two runs the Jays put on the board. Bottom of the sixth, Chris Bassett's having a really nice outing, locates a pitch in an okay spot down in the zone. Luis Robert Jr. uh, tattoos it 450 feet. Uh, That puts the White Sox ahead three to two. We go to the eighth then. Brandon Belt draws a walk. Fitting. I was at the Weezer concert. You know, Say It Ain't So might have lined up exactly with the Brandon Belt walk. Uh, Anyway, he walks. And then Vladimir Guerrero Jr., takes a pitch that Joe Kelly left up in the zone. Catcher's calling for it low, gets away from him up. Vlad kind of not pokes because it was really well hit, uh, but drives it the other way for uh, a home run. A pretty, pretty no doubter to right field. That puts Jays ahead four to three. Maybe if you were watching this Blue Jays team on the weekend, you weren't super confident in in what would come next as far as the bullpen goes. Uh, Nate Pearson had just pitched a a clean seventh. In the eighth, Eric Swanson, who's had a a little bit of a rough go of late, has another bit of a rough go where George Springer has the ball go off of his glove and then Springer gets caught in the, the netting a little bit. It ends up with Tim Anderson on third base, but he gets out of it. And then Jordan Romano strikes out the side in the ninth. So the Jays win 4 3. Not a beat down of a lowly team, but Giolito's a good pitcher. Luis Robert Jr.'s a, a good hitter. And you just needed a win. You needed to shake off the sweep at the hands of the Red Sox. So uh, they win that one 4-3. There was much bigger news uh, a little earlier in the day. Alec Manoa is going to start on Friday against the Detroit Tigers in Detroit. This is uh, faster than most of us anticipated. We'll hear from John Schneider uh, a little later in the show. We'll, we'll you know, play back some of his comments and explanations. We'll talk to our guests about it. By the way, Ben Nicholson Smith is going to join us at 11. Uh, at t- around 1030, we're going to have Julia Steiner, the lead singer of a band, Rap Boys, who's a huge, huge White Sox fan, uh, on around 1030. And Joe Siddle is going to join us in a minute here. Uh, of course, a lot of Alec Manoa talk with Ben Nicholson Smith and Joe Siddle. Uh, it's an interesting choice. He could have done another minor league game or two targeted, maybe post all-star break. We'll kick around some of the reasons for doing this now versus doing it later. I think the biggest one and Chris Bassett spoke pretty openly about it yesterday. We've seen it in the numbers with Kevin Gosman burning a four man rotation 
has a, a toll on your other on the four remaining starting pitchers. It's not just about the bullpen days, which the Blue Jays went one and two in and had an ERA just a little south of five. Um, the actual bullpen days have gone, you know, about as well as you you could have hoped, really. But there's a toll here, and there's a toll here on the bullpen. I mentioned Eric Swanson and Jordan Romano had blips on the weekend. They have been under heavy, heavy workloads. Well, now you get Trevor Richards back into maybe a seventh inning role that maybe even an eighth inning role that lets you lean on Swanson and Romano and Tim Meza just a little bit less because the back end of your bullpen is stronger. Um, you could potentially, who knows, send Bowden Francis back down to AAA, even though he's been good, and keep him stretched out as a proper sixth starter instead of a long man in the bullpen. Um, you can... Give your guys an extra day of rest here and there. Uh, Chris Bassett mentioned, you know, there's a cost to um, how you do your bullpen sessions in between starts to how you're working out in between starts when you're starting on shorter rest than maybe you otherwise would. Uh, A lot to consider with the timing of bringing Alec Manoa back up to the majors. By the way, if you missed it on the weekend, he did throw five innings at double A. He allowed one earned run on three hits, three walks with 10 strikeouts. So the results were fine. Uh, Just like we didn't put much stock in the FCL results. We're not going to put a ton of stock into the double A results, but as John Schneider and the blue Jays laid out, there are checklists that Alec Manoa had to complete uh, for the team to be comfortable with him coming back up. And it, it wasn't as much results based as it was, process and feel and eye test and pitching lab based. And he has checked those boxes. So he'll start Friday in Detroit. Kind of turns a, an otherwise missable Friday game right before all-star against the lowly team into a, a must see game. And we'll see if Alec Manoa gets the, uh, the old Windsor welcome who would know better than Windsor's finest. Our next guest, Joe Siddle sports Ed analyst, Joe, how are you? The Windsor welcome. I've never had that before, Blake. Thank you. No, yeah, it's it's for you. I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> that there's a Windsor welcome for Alec Manoa on Friday as well. Obviously, Blue Jays fans mm. travel very well. I, I was going to say Manoa to a little later, but uh, you as a Windsor guy, you got to be pretty fired up for this weekend now. That should be a lot of fun. And there will be a lot of Windsorites at those games this weekend too. Uh, many Blue Jays fans travel well, but... A lot of Windsorites. It's uh, I would say it's a little more Detroitish because of our geographical presence in Windsor. I grew up a Tigers fan myself, but still a lot of Blue Jays fans in that area as well, and there'll be a lot of blue in the crowd at Comerica. Yeah, I would I would bet so. Um, so what what was your? We'll talk about last night's game in a little bit, but since since we're on the the Detroit thing and Manoa returning Friday to start here, what was your reaction when you first heard that news yesterday? That uh, it was going to be Friday. It wasn't going to be post-All-Star break. It wasn't going to be after another minor league start or two. He's got the two starts, one at FCL, one at AA, and he's back. I was surprised. I was surprised, I think, especially the way John Schneider presented it. He was sitting talking to all of us and going over the, the guys like Ryu and Pop and what guys are doing and Simbers here, and then he just finished by saying, and Alec Manoa will start Friday in Detroit. <laughs> <laughs> so that was pretty comical. But, yeah, I think all of us were kind of taken aback. Um, I just thought he'd be longer. I thought um, with whatever it is that he's dealing with, mechanically uh, otherwise, that it was going to take a little bit longer, more than just the two starts that we had heard about. And I don't want to say that we saw because I didn't see anything. And I guess we just trust that the people that did see him trust that that stuff will play at the next level up up in the big leagues. And, uh, yeah, it's Detroit. It's not a great offense, but still it's the big leagues and it's the bigger stage. So um, my, my first reaction is this 
this better go well because <laughs> my thing all along was that if you ever bring them back too soon and it doesn't go well, what then? What next? And that's the trouble. But obviously they feel comfortable in what they saw. So I, I'm just looking forward to watching because until I see things with my own eyes, I, it's hard for me to really say it's right or wrong. But uh, when the people that are in charge think it's the right time, then it's the right time. We'll find out Friday. I'm with you, Joe. I thought it was a little quick. I thought there was a little, there's some risk here of, like you said, what, what if it doesn't go well? And you know, if you like, let's say he, he gets sent back down, it doesn't go well. He gets sent back down to the lab and then he has another good start at double a on his way back up. Like, I, I don't know. I don't know how you build it back up. I, I think you have to push the timeline back a little further. Um, you, it is not a very good offense in Detroit. Now they've been better over the last 30 days or so. They're a team that can take some walks, but they are very righty heavy, so you don't have to worry about the platoon stuff as much. And then if you look ahead to the schedule coming out of the All-Star break, it's Arizona and San Diego and then the Dodgers not long after that. Um, do you do you think there's an element of they looked at the schedule and they wanted to have him get a not soft landing spot because as you've hammered home of late on Blue Jays Central and on the broadcast, there are no easy opponents when you're not playing good baseball. But, um, you know, the Tigers compared to, say, the Diamondbacks or the Padres, uh, do you think there there was an element of that in this decision? Well, there certainly could be. Um, I, w- I would say yes to that. I don't know whatsoever, but I, I think if you get one of those first, maybe it's a way of him getting back, getting his feet wet. And we know, Alec, he's going to be amped up, and rightfully so, to be back and try to prove that things have changed and that he's a lot better, so why not do it against a, a lesser offense in Detroit rather than just come right out against the Diamondbacks or something like that? So I think uh, that could have something to do with it, but more importantly than anything, it's it's watching him, and I mentioned on the broadcast last night, it's, it's got to be tricky for organizations when they promote players because as a pitcher, you can probably tell a little bit more accurately because the ball is in his hand. You can see what the velocity is doing. You can see what the movement's doing. How's the slider spinning, the delivery, all those things, whereas with hitters and you promote them, if somebody's doing really well in double-A, you can say, oh, well, that's double-A pitching. So, you know, those those pitchers might not necessarily have the secondary pitches or be able to pitch behind in the count like like more advanced pitchers. So it is a little more tricky. But, I, yeah, obviously with what we've, what they saw in Alec, regardless of who he was facing, because let's not kid ourselves, it's a double-A. Mm-hmm. And that's a, a long, long ways from the major leagues when you're facing hitters. Yeah, it is a it is a long way, as was the FCL, where things didn't go nearly as well, uh, of course. So, Joe, you mentioned, you know, you, you can't really judge until you see things with, with your own eyes because it was double A. It was FCL. You need to see Alec Manoa on the hill on Friday. What do you, what is the foremost thing you're looking for? Where uh, obviously we're going to we're going to take in every part of that start. But what is you know, if there were, was a one A and a one B uh, of things you're looking for as positive indicators from Manoa on Friday, what would those be? Well, even after we just said it's Detroit's lineup and, you know, it's not one of the best in the league, but I watch hitters. As a catcher, I watch and and get a feel from how the hitters are reacting. And we know over the course of Alex's two seasons, two really good seasons, when you watch hitters, they're not comfortable at bats. And when you watch him even miss his spots, I mean, let's not kid ourselves. He doesn't dot the edges of his own, right? He lets it go. And I think it's that big body deception that is a real big advantage for Alec, especially righty on righty. Righties are just, and I've talked to some right-handed hitters that have faced him. They said, you just can't pick up the ball. Now that's over the course of the last two seasons. So I'm going to look at the reactions of hitters. If he throws that sinker, four-steamer, doesn't matter that fastball, even in the middle of the zone area. Well, I think this year we've been seeing a lot of comfortable swings 
And in the past, and what we hope to see moving forward here, are more uncomfortable swings. You know, the, the foul balls, swinging late and fouling it off over the first base dugout, maybe on pitches that you look like, how did he miss that? So those are the things I think that are really important. And also the spin on his slider and how it's breaking, because that obviously plays so well with his fastball. And uh, when, he's, when he's good, he's burying that thing down. He's burying it down away. And we saw that uh, very inconsistent this year. So there are a lot of things there. Um, but the hitter can tell you an awful lot. Uh, I do look at the radar gun just like everybody else, but more importantly, if it, it can be, he doesn't have to, he's not a guy that's, that's 97, 98, right? And he doesn't have to be, at least he wasn't when he was really, really good. So you watch the reactions of hitters. And if it's 93 right there and they're fouling off, that's probably a good sign. It, it would be a good sign. And so the, the other trickle down from this is that at least for now we're done with the bullpen days obviously trevor richards filled in as admirably as anyone could have hoped bowden francis looked pretty good um, but joe you know having seen a couple of those now having seen the jays juggle a four-man rotation and lose extra rest for guys here and there have you had enough of bullpen days for the time being well i think everybody has right and not that it hasn't gone okay because richards and even bowden francis was great in his last time out too but it's just it's hard to operate like that mm-hmm. And, you know, it is only the start of July. There's still a lot of baseball to be played and, and to, to think you're going to, you know, I know there are guys coming back, but who knows, you know, I, I'm going to hold back until I see Ryu come back and see how he's pitching. I mean, it's the guy coming off Tommy John surgery. So I don't think we're necessarily getting vintage Ryu when he gets back, right? We'll see. Hopefully it is, but that's, uh, that's hard to expect. But yeah, and especially with the way that, you know, the guys aren't getting any younger there. God's been ambassador in the rotation and we've seen they're better with that extra day. So they need Alec back for sure, but they need Alec to be a different version of Alec, and that's that's going to help the rotation. And we've talked extensively about the impact that has on the bullpen. It's just it's amazing how baseball works because it's such an everyday sport. If your starting pitchers go deep, you keep your bullpen somewhat rested. That's not necessarily the case all the time. When you're scoring more runs, you can help keep your leverage guys in the bullpen rested. And all of these things, it's kind of a really cloudy picture for this team right now. Hopefully last night's a good indication of, of moving forward and um, getting that combination of starting pitching, relief help, and the lineup scoring some runs. Yeah, the lineup scoring some runs. They, they put four on the board. It's better than nothing. And, and Lucas Giolito is a pretty good starter who looked very sharp last night. Um, but, you know, four runs is not going to be a, enough sometimes. We did see, though, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. come through in a, in a pretty big moment with that go-ahead home run. Um, it, it, it was funny how, you know, you and Dan are, are – discussing how Vlad handles pitches up in the zone uh, better than he does low. And then the catcher is set up very low and Joe Kelly misses his spot high and Vlad reaches out and takes it the other way. Um, What are you seeing from Vlad lately? I I know you have been less quick to jump on the, Hey, Vlad is, you know, moving in the right direction because you are, you haven't always been seeing the right mechanical things and the right approach things last 10 games or so. Are are you starting to feel a little bit better about Vlad at the plate? Well, I think it's just because he is so darn talented. And I keep saying that because you have to preface it that way. Mm -hmm. He can just do things that other people can't. And we probably saw one of them last night, taking a slider up in the zone and just, punching it over the right field fence. I mean, most human beings, that ball probably goes off the fence or it's caught by the right fielder. So he can just do special things. I thought what was really impressive last night and something that I think is going to be 
probably just as positive moving forward, Vlad, was his base hit in the fourth inning. Mm -hmm. He took a slider down and away, and I talked about that hinge at the hips getting down there. And part of the reason, probably why he doesn't handle or drive the ball down as much, but if he's doing that on sliders down in the zone, that's a very good sign too. Now, it was a ground ball that went into right field, but still those are the ones that we've seen a lot of the rollovers because he doesn't get down to get to that pitch. So that was a really good sign. The home run was obviously a good sign. And I think the best sign... Last night I said it too. It, it's it's not just that they got a late home run to win a baseball game because they haven't really been getting that. And I think we all knew or felt coming out of spring training that that's the way this team was built. They were going to hit really well, but also for some power. And we just haven't seen that. But the fact that it was Vladdy too, that, uh, that's a huge plus because if he can do that a little bit more often in the second half of the season – that's going to go a long ways to getting this offense back on track. Absolutely, it would. Uh, you sprinkle a couple home runs in there, whether from Vlad or, or anyone in this lineup, and you know some of those runners in scoring position issues look a little differently. Some of those, you know, zeros become ones, ones become twos. Um, so, with respect to Vlad, I, I'm curious if you put much stock into this. So, I saw someone uh, tweet yesterday. It was Jonah Bierenbaum of the Score tweeted uh, Vlad's OPS against bad teams and his OPS against good teams, and obviously. He had the two home runs against Oakland. He homered against Chicago yesterday. This, to me, it, it can get pretty noisy, and bad teams have good pitchers, and good teams have bad pitchers. Do you put any stock into something like that, that, that he has had a little more success against lesser teams? Well, I would. Uh, I, I mean, I would, because good hitters hit good pitching, right? Like the really good hitters in the game hit good pitching, and that was Vladdy. Uh, of course, he hit everything. And I think when you play those lesser teams that you're referring to, they have fewer quality arms. And when the quality goes down, when you're facing an average starting pitcher or a bullpen that struggles like the White Sox, they don't execute pitches as well. And maybe when you're playing the Astros or, you know, the Yankees bullpen or people that every hitter, I've talked about it extensively, every hitter has a weakness here or there, whether it's up in the zone or whether it's the breaking ball or whether it's chasing with two strikes. But I think, good pitchers, good teams with good game plans that have good pitchers. Good pitchers are guys that can have good stuff, but they execute those pitches. And we saw, for example, you know, we talked about the, the elevated fastball. We've talked about it a lot. And I thought the Giants did a pretty good job of it. We talked about but again with Brandon Bell, right? His former team, they know him well. But when you execute the pitches against a hitter's weakness, it makes it very difficult. Well, the lesser teams probably have fewer quality arms that can execute those pitches. So they'll miss spots. So I think it goes hand in hand and that's why good hitters probably should hammer the, the lesser teams with, with not as good pitching staff, not as many quality arms, but yeah, it makes it much more difficult and tougher when you face better pitching because they execute better. And this has been kind of a, a team-wide thing where obviously they're seven and 20 in the American league East and they are doing a lot of damage against non-American league East teams, uh, 39 and 20 outside of the division. Um, Joe, I know you, you spoke pretty passionately on Sunday on blue Jays central after the game about, the fact that the Blue Jays can't look at anyone as a lighter part of the schedule right now, even the White Sox and the Tigers heading into the all-star break, you know, that's a patch of schedule where, you know, if you're playing your best baseball, that looks like a pretty nice way to head into the all-star break um, with the Jays not playing as consistently and as strong a brand of baseball as we would like. What do you look for in a six game set like this heading into the break that, that tells you, you know, this team is, taking the right level of urgency, even against lesser competition. 
Well, I think we saw it all last night. We saw a good start by Bassett. I'm sure he'd love that one pitch back, but uh, it's a very dangerous hitter in Louis Robert Jr. that hit it out. But to, the late home run by Vladdy, like that's what we're missing, right? That's That hasn't been around. And then I thought Pearson coming in to pitch to the bottom of the order. And like, this is all by design. And I think Schneider and Pete Walker and their staff, that this is how they design things. And Use Pearson for the lower leverage at the bottom of the order, and he cruises through one, two, three, great. And then you hand it over to Swanson again at the top. And Eric pitched in a lot of leverage, and I'm sure you saw the graphic we had on on the screen last night. Like he's pitched a lot, and he is going to fly by his career and appearances. So those are things you're going to have to watch over the course of the the second half of the season. And as good as he has been, it's it's going to be hard to ask him to keep doing this for three more months. So we'll see. And then it sets up for Jordan. Jordan just cruised through. And there's there, once again, it's a lineup that's not great, and especially the bottom half of the lineup. And it was just good to see Jordan spin the ball the way he did. And But, I mean, that that's what happens when you face lesser hitters too, right? It works both ways. So he made pretty light work of that. But I think it's the, that's the perfect game for the Blue Jays, right? It's not perfect because obviously, like, Seven runs on 14 hits would have been perfect, but but it was enough. They got the late home run from Vladdy, which, again, I feel is very critical. Critical. Good start. Good job with the bullpen. But once again, those are things you should be doing if you are not just a playoff contender, but a team that wants to go deep in the playoffs. This is what you should be doing and more to teams like the Chicago White Sox. What did you make of Romano going to the slider almost exclusively? Um, I think he only threw two fastballs in that appearance. I know, you know, the fastball had been hit hard on the weekend. That was probably more because he left it middle, middle than, than it was anything to do with the, the actual fastball. But, uh, you know, he, he really leaned on the slider in that one, uh, 11 of his 13 pitches. What, what did he make of that decision? Well, he's got two very good pitches and, you know, I'll be first. We didn't talk about it after the game on Sunday, but I had no problem with the first pitch fastball to Verdugo. Cause I'll be the first one to say, remember last year I talked about a lot, he got into such a pattern of throwing those first pitch sliders mm-hmm. so lefties could kind of sit on it. And you don't want to get into a pattern. And I'll trust Jordan's fastball. I mean, you should. You should trust his fastball. But Verdugo hit it out of the park. Yes, it was middle-middle, and he hit it out of the park. I, I call that somewhat unfortunate. If he would have gone first pitch slider there and he got hit out of the park, I would have gone crazy. So I have to live with that result. And then you never know. Maybe that's lingering in his head. And he's thinking, I want to spin it more tonight against the White Sox. It could just be the order, too. I've talked to Jordan before about that. Sometimes he just feels it depends on the hitters. And you could see, I think I was talking to a couple of those at-bats. It's like, you just got to stay with the slider here. Like, I wouldn't normally throw four or five sliders in a row. But when a hitter looks like some of them did, you just keep throwing it. And that's what he did. So it could have just been a feel thing, too. I'm not sure he came into that game thinking, I'm throwing a ton of sliders tonight. You just kind of get a feel as you go from the first hitter to the second hitter, and that's just the way it worked. And when you're chase, they're chasing like that. I mean, he was locating them all down there, but they were helping by chasing. So just keep throwing it. Uh, with respect to, to Bassett, you mentioned the one pitch he'd like to have back, a sweeper that caught too much of the, I mean, middle – middle low, but, but kind of right where Lewis Robert could take it for 450 feet. But Bassett generally that pitch aside, it has had two pretty solid bounce back starts here. I, I know that he's probably a guy that's going to go up and down a little bit because, you know, he throws so many pitches and you might lose one thing and have to find another. Uh, you like the response you've seen from him the last couple starts after that stretch of poor ones. Oh yeah. I mean, I, it was funny last night because I think it was the Robert's first at bat in the first inning. He may have started him out with a, a breaking ball and 
it was the slow one. And I kind of made it a point to Dan too. I said, let's just keep that in our, in our, <laughs> in our heads here, because that's a pitch that he, he's still real slow. And it's almost like you do that right away. And I don't know this at all, but I'm thinking maybe he does that right away. First pitch to Robert of the night. So now it's in his head all night long. So he's always got to honor that. And maybe that'll help the sinker work better against him. You know, you're always thinking that second and third at bat. Well, it wasn't the slow curveball. It was that whatever he calls that sweeper thing, and it was just kind of hanging over the middle of the plate, and Robert was all over it. But it makes you wonder, though, if maybe it worked backwards. Like maybe, yeah, Robert was thinking about it all right, so much so that he might have been sitting on it. Mm-hmm. But who knows? This is this is what good hitters do, and it, that's why it's such a chess match all the time. But, yeah, I thought um, that Bassett was down in the zone more last night. Uh, you know, we we've talked before about, his sinker is such a great pitch for him, but it's a guy that uses the sinker up in the zone more. And it seemed like he was really working the bottom half of the zone more. And he was getting a lot of ground ball outs. I think he had like nine ground ball outs, including the double play ball that, that Bowen and, and Witt turned. That was a little bit maybe different to me, but um, overall pretty darn good. And it just, you had a feeling or I had a feeling going in that this should be a good day for Bassett with only two left-handed batters. Mm-hmm. I mean, him and Barrios, keep the left-handed batters away from those guys and <laughs> life is pretty good. Right. So the white Sox, they, they had sheets on the bench. They've only got three potential lefties. So that should be an advantage for Barrios tonight too. And Bassett did pretty well against the righties. Yeah. And Bassett will get a, another matchup just like that on the weekend before the all-star break. Cause the tigers only employ two lefties as well and not, you know, world beaters in Zach McKinstry and Kerry Carpenter there. So uh, potential, some potential there to, to keep the momentum rolling. Uh, Joe Siddle. Thanks for taking the time out this morning, man. I hope, well, the rest of this series, of course, but Detroit, that's a, that's a big one for you. Hope you have a blast this weekend. A little homecoming. Thanks, Blake. And then I'll have a few days at home for the break. Perfect. Uh, you deserve it, man. Uh, Joe Siddle, Sportsnet analyst on the broadcast uh, for tonight's game. Um, we're going to take a break. You can keep your sense of text in today, by the way. I forgot to mention off the top because I forget to mention off the top every single time that uh, we're going to take some of your texts throughout the show, including uh, the last segment of the show today is just going to be you guys. It's, it's going to be a mailbag. So you can text into 590-590. you got questions about where the Jays are at right now, how they're going to run the rotation, optimal batting or questions, comments, whatever, uh, hit us up five ninety five ninety. You could text those in and we'll, uh, we'll do a couple of them coming out of the, coming out of the break, but mostly, uh, in that 1130 last chunk of the the show, we'll, uh, we'll kind of turn it over to you guys for a little Jay's talk plus mailbag. Uh, right now we're going to take a break. When we come back, Julia Steiner, lead singer of rap boys, one of my favorite bands, uh, and a huge, huge, huge white Sox fan. Who's going to be down at the game tonight. She'll join us and give us kind of the, uh, the pulse of White Sox fandom right now. It's uh, not pretty. That's X on Stock Plus on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That is the lovely voice of our next guest, Julia Steiner, lead singer of Rap Boys, huge White Sox fan. Uh, I know it's supposed to be a little stormy there later today, maybe, but Julia, how we doing? Hey, I'm good. Doing well. Fingers crossed that the rain holds out. Thanks for having me on. How are you? I am. I'm great. Uh, things went uh, a little. I was actually down with our buddies in Pup at the Weezer show last night and Joyce Manor, and oh. then caught the caught the Jays game, the Jays White Sox game late. And what a what a Jays White Sox game for me to to have caught late. 
What a game for you to have caught. Yeah. Wow. What a day. Wow. Jam packed. Yeah. Rock and ball. Love it. There's nothing better. The the two things that I care about, rock and ball. Um, so, Julia, you're, you're a huge White Sox fan. I'm curious, though. Um, so I, I know you're, you're Chicago-based. The Choosing White Sox fandom or Cubs fandom, is that strictly a geographical thing, or, or is there more that goes into it than that? Well, no. For, okay, so for me, I have a bit of a complicated journey to baseball <laughs> in general. I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a state that has no professional sports. Our, our whole thing growing up is college basketball. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, Steve's wife is from the same hometown, and so he's kind of been you know, familiarized with the culture down there. But anyway, um, so there's no baseball. I, I grew up watching minor league baseball, and so when I moved here about 10 years ago, I was like, oh, my gosh, there's two teams? Like, this is great. I'll root for both. And so <laughs> the Cubs, yeah, the Cubs won the World Series, like, two years into me living here and the city went insane and that team was really easy to root for. And so I was following the Cubs very closely, but then that team actually kind of fell apart really quickly after they won. And my friend who I live with a guy named Marty is a huge Sox fan. He's a South side guy. And so he kind of saw that I was losing a little bit of interest in the Cubs and swooped in and started (laughs) teaching me and like you know taking me to games and stuff and a bunch of our friends were already Sox fans and you know I mean their branding is cool they had a lot of fun lovable players they were like building something special you know in the late 2010s and so it was easy to kind of just switch on over so for the last few years I've been pretty much a straight Sox fan paying exclusively paying attention to them over the Cubs. And I love going to their games too. Mm-hmm. It's they're cheaper and better beer, better food. What, what more could you want? You know? Yeah, exactly. And you mentioned Louisville. So I, I was actually, I was there for Steve's wedding in April and we missed Joey Votto on a rehab assignment with the Louisville bats by like 36 hours. We could have had oh like God. the greatest Canadian player and we could have made it a part of the week and just missed just oh, I did not know he was Canadian. That's really cool. Oh man. I'm bummed. You missed. Yeah. Those are some of my best, Childhood memories, actually, like I saw Ken Griffey Jr. play for the Bats. Like anyone who was on the Reds and injured, we got to see, you know, play in our little dinky stadium, although it is actually quite a nice minor league stadium. But um, yeah, oh man, did you, what did you think of Louisville? Oh, it was great. Uh, I got to, I actually took Steve's dad to the, to the Louisville Slugger Museum and like got a, a custom made bat for, for my little nephew uh, as a birthday gift and stuff. It was, uh, it was cool. I mean, it was wedding heavy, but the city itself is, is awesome. I'm glad you got to see the big bat for anyone listening. <laughs> you should go see the big bat. It's worth seeing. You'll I know what I mean. For sure. There's a huge bat on the street, but uh, also for any like hardcore <laughs> baseball fan who finds himself in Louisville, taking the actual tour through the Louisville slugger yeah. museum and how the bats are made and stuff is so like learning stuff like, Oh, well, this is why there's this wood grain in this spot. And th- we put the, the, like um, the watermark or whatever on this part of the bat for this reason. It's really fascinating to, uh, learn about that stuff on top of which there's a ton of history with you know like Jackie Robinson and the historic Louisville slugger bats used over time um okay so you mentioned that White Sox games uh, a little cheaper better beer selection things like that um in terms of the the vibe at a White Sox game versus a Cubs game have have you found like do you just identify a little better with with the White Sox fans It, it seems to me like from afar the Cubs have 
shifted a tiny bit from like lovable losers for a really long time to almost what the Red Sox did 20 years ago where they won and now they're just like a little more annoying. Is, is that an accurate read on it? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I And I'm not here to like, you know, talk down about the Cubs or whatever, but like, yeah, they're their whole vibe feels a little like corporate and mm. bro-y these days. And like um, last, I was at a Cubs game recently actually for a job. I work for an event planner and it, a lot of the, it kind of feels sometimes like it's either families or like you're there to get completely wasted. Like there's <laughs> no in between. And, you know, I find myself somewhere in between that spectrum and I felt a little out of place, but um, I mean, it's a beautiful stadium. The Sox stadium though is a lot bigger and, there's just kind of more space to amble around and explore and yeah, a little, it just feels a little more low key, a little more relaxed. Like, I don't know. People are clearly there. Like who've just gotten off work. It's like, I don't know. It's like more, you know, no frills, but still just really comfortable. And like you feel, you feel, you know, safe and at home and whatever. And yeah, it's fun to, fun to check it out. And I love to like the very top, if you're ever there and you go up to like the very top, like 500 section, if you go all the way up, you're behind home plate. You can like see the lake mm-hmm. out over the stadium. It's it's really nice. I mean, I do wish they would have oriented the stadium so you could see the skyline, but I guess there's some reasons they didn't do that. But it's a nice place to be. Yeah, I, I've really enjoyed it. I've been to both, and I went to. I was actually at Guaranteed Rate Field last summer, and yeah, I love the like you you take the train up and you kind of walk up this hill, and it, it like everything's like black and gray, so it almost feels like when you're up in the 500s, you're like at the top of a castle or something like that. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's cool. Uh, You also got to sing the anthem there in 2021. Um, What was that like? Oh, my gosh. That was so cool. Yeah, my friend Elizabeth Mullen, who is a very talented musician, um, got us in with the Sox singing the anthem uh, through a friend of hers. And it was really cool. We got there, like, super early in the day to sound check. It was an afternoon. I think it was like a 410 first pitch, but... You know, they had us get there at noon and we <laughs> practiced in the empty stadium. And then we just like hung out and watched, you know, the team take batting practice. And we were really hoping to get out on the field and go like, you know, you know, rub elbows with Tim Anderson <laughs> or whatever. But it was still like a COVID thing. And so they wouldn't let us go out there. Um, but it was, yeah, it was really cool. And then like, you know, surprisingly easy to do the actual singing part. Like, you know, they bring out a monitor so you're not you know, hearing yourself reverberate all over the stadium and yeah. Oh my God. It was really cool. And then of course they let you sit in the nice seats with the mm-hmm. food and open bar and everything. So I had a ball. Did um, they give you a Jersey too? No, they didn't. But Liz's dad, there's some sort of family connection where like his best college buddy works for the Sox. And so he got us some sort of swag. I don't know if it was through the team, but there was like, <laughs> <laughs> there were these like chains floating around. I don't know what was going on, but I didn't end up taking one home, but we were all like passing them around. It was, it was a good time. <laughs> so tonight you, you'll weather permitting, you'll be down at the game, uh, not singing the anthem, but, but just enjoying, um, how, yeah. how are you feeling about this year's white Sox team in general? I know, uh, you were a part of that big, uh, spin magazine kind of, uh, thing at the start of the year where they talked to a whole bunch of musicians about their teams and their predictions. And you and Dave, who's also in the band were a little less optimistic than some others when it came to the white Sox. Are, are you feeling a little, uh, vindicated in your lack of White Sox optimism? Okay. I'm so glad you mentioned this because, yes, I read that piece when it came out. I read the whole thing. 
for anyone who wants to go and read it, it's very long. There's a lot of predictions. 113 musicians. Yeah, so it might take a while, and we're at the very bottom. But um, So once you get there, it'll be worth it. But, yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I, like, I submitted my answers to those questions right after the news came out that we were not going to be, like, parting ways with Mike Clevenger or punishing him in any way. And I was so mad, and I was just so disappointed in every, you know, part of the White Sox in- institution and – so my answer is, yeah, I was just being very honest. And then when I read the piece, everyone was like, oh, the socks are going to do great. And I'm, and there's me being like, this, we're doomed, you know. But um, no, I mean, yeah, I was, I was honest. And I just think there's been a lot of kind of like, there's been a big disconnect for the last couple years, like few years, if we're being honest, with like the intentions with this team and what's actually happening on the field, like, we have a lot of really good players that are either just underperforming or not really like clicking together. And to ask a first year manager to come in and like all of a sudden fix this after we get rid of like our, like, you know, like the center of our franchise, like clubhouse leader, like send him away to our, you know, most hated team. And then we ask (laughs) this guy to come in and fix it. Like I just, yeah, I wasn't very optimistic and yeah, it's been, I mean, the first few weeks of the season were completely ludicrous. Like the Sox were that bad. And now, of course, you know, you're asking me, we just lost two of three to the A's. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, things are not going well. Um, I am just excited to see what happens. The only other game I've been to this year, they beat the Orioles. So that was cool. It was like a walk-off. So I'm hoping I'll have a similar, you know, experience tonight where they somehow pull something off. Wow. Um but yeah, they're a mess. <laughs> I hope that that better experience comes. I, I know you guys aren't on the, the road a ton until September uh, right now, but I, I, I do hope that those days come for you, just not in this series because, you know, I, I could yeah. use a couple of positive shows here because the Jays got swept by the Red Sox on the weekend. So it's been kind yeah, of negative around here. So, um, but there, there have been a couple positives with, with the White Sox this year. Um, I mean, obviously the Liam Hendricks Burger. story. He, yeah, burgers. Burgers been fun. The fact that they have a guy named Burger and a guy named Colas is really good yeah. for just dumb Twitter posts and stuff. Um, what what has been your your favorite part of the season so far? Yeah, the Liam Hendricks thing was was obviously extremely inspiring, and he's one of my favorite players on the team. Um, hmm, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, when I was at the game, that Baltimore game, I guess my favorite experience would be one that I saw in person. But yeah. I think it was Colas who hit the walk-off in that game, and it felt for a second like there was some hope. That was kind of like the beginning of a big upswing for us. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was that came back from injury, and it kind of sparked us. But, yeah, that any sort of walk-off that you can <laughs> see with your friends in person, uh, it, that was – that was absolutely great. You know, we'll see. We'll see if something similar happens. But, so Hendrix yeah. is Sorry about the Jays. <laughs> yeah, that, that's okay. So Hendrix is, is one of your favorites. Um, you've been a fan of this team for a couple years now. It, has there been anyone who's like really stood out to you over the last few years as, as someone you've gravitated towards and kind of made your guy or your favorite? Yeah. Well, so I love Yasmani Grandal, which is a complicated thing because <laughs> Like I was, I really enjoyed following him last year because his stat line was really, really weird. It was like a statistical anomaly. His average at one point, I think was below 200, but his slugging or his OPS or something was like way up there. Like he would either like strike out or hit a really clutch home run Mm -hmm. 
There's like no in between. He was, it was just really, really weird. And I kind of happened to be tuning in during a lot of his like weirdly clutch moments. And it just felt like otherworldly. It felt kind of from above or something. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, he's a goofball. And I gravitate toward catchers. I think, I don't know, their endurance, like squatting for a whole game <laughs> is something I've always admired since I was a kid. Look, I'm in sports media. Of course, I gravitate toward catchers. All my colleagues are former catchers. That that's the that's nice. the spot where you go into uh, you go into media after. Um, so we're talking to Julie Steiner of Rap Boys, and Julie, you're you're not on the road a ton this next little bit uh, because you guys have an album coming out on August 25th, and then you'll tour off of that. Uh, the album's called The Window, which people can pre-order now at RapBoysBand.com. Um, I, I was not to be like a, a geek and a fanboy. I was a huge, huge fan of, of Printer's Devil. Um, what, what has gone into the window? What, what are you really excited about with this album? The, the guys from Pup have me very excited about it. They told me they've heard some of it already, um, and I know there are three songs out from it. But, but you know, the the whole thing sounds really exciting. Thanks. Yeah, this is the first record that we ever like left Chicago to go make. We live in Chicago. We've always recorded close to home, but this time we had an opportunity to go out to Seattle and um, recorded this guy named Chris Walla, who's like mm-hmm. a hero of ours growing up. One of our favorite producers used to be in the band Death Cab for Cutie and made all their early records and worked with Tegan and Sarah, one of Canada's best bands. And yeah, just many other bands that we admire. And so we got to go out and work with him and we were there for a whole month. And so we really kind of dug our teeth in and like got into the weeds and just enjoyed like exploring all these details and we had all the songs really kind of well rehearsed. And so we just laid the bones down to tape and then spent like three weeks tinkering and exploring and messing around. And yeah, it was just a really kind of like, I hesitate to use the word magical, but it just felt like very kind of like what we had always hoped we could make a record, like what it would feel like to like be in that environment, just so immersive and like (laughs) positive and everything. And so, yeah, it was, it was really great. And, um, we're proud of it. Yeah, excited to show it and share it with the world because lots of diff- lots of stuff going on. Like, I don't know, lots of different sounding songs. Got the rock stuff, got the quiet stuff, got the slow burns. It's, uh, yeah, we're, we're excited to have it out in a month. And the uh, the title track, The Window, is also out as a, as a video and a single now. People can stream that uh, wherever they stream. And that one, I mean, I love the, the thematic use of windows in that. And I know that that the idea for that song and some of the lyrics from it come from, uh, you know, something unfortunate that, you know, the loss of your grandmother during, during the pandemic. Um, I actually went through that with both grandmothers during the pandemic. So I found it resonated very much with me. Um, do you feel like this is a little bit of a, like, like, did you do most of the writing during the pandemic times? And I, I know you guys did the, the happy birthday rap boy, um, you know, at some point since then, but is, is this kind of like the, the product of having, written and been isolated a little bit and dealing with those things through the pandemic? Somewhat. Yeah. I mean, some of the songs, actually it's weird. Uh, uh, quite a few of them came about before um, 2020, just because um, the way making records work now, you kind of finish a record and it takes a while for it to come out. So I had been writing songs while we were waiting to release our last record, Printer Devil that you alluded to. And so some of these are from pre 2020, but then yeah, a couple, a few of them, like The Window and It's Live, came about in 2020. And, um, yeah, I mean, I would say this this record is definitely the product of of that year and of having that much 
time to work on it because, you know, Mm -hmm. we weren't touring like we were planning. And so we had so much time. And at the time, three of us lived together and our drummer, you know, we welcomed him into our little pod or whatever. And so we were practicing all the time and like working on these songs constantly. And so we just had a lot of free time to like really kind of shape the songs and workshop things. And, um, and I'm really grateful because we've never had that much time before. Um, and that was definitely the product of, you know, a year plus spent at home, but yeah, God, I'm sorry to hear that. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's really a thing that resonates, I think with a lot of people, like we started playing the window, the song on the road last year and people would every day, people would come up and kind of talk to me and us about that song. And so, we were like, yeah, we probably should call the record this. Like, it, it seems like kind of an important song to us. But yeah, I'm glad you like it. Thanks for checking it out. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a big fan. So not not to uh, again not to fanboy or whatever. But uh, curious. Uh, so you you said you brought the drummer into the pod. I, I know you and Dave are White Sox fans, and Sean is a Cubs fan. Have you been able to nudge Marcus in one direction or the other? Well, Marcus is a Cubs fan, too. He's from the north side, and as you mentioned, it is a little bit geographic-based. And so, um, although it's weird because Sean's from the south side, so yeah, it's more like (laughs) family traditions. I don't know. But, yeah, we we have a bit of an even balance there as far as Cubs socks go. Um, But I will mention this. Sean's family is is Canadian. He has Canadian lineage, and his grandfather actually – is on one of those little plaques at the Louisville Slugger Museum. You know how they have like yeah. a little, they have like a little nameplate for every person I think that's like ever played with a Louisville Slugger bat professionally in any capacity. And so we went one time to the museum and like found his grandpa on the wall. So we were very proud, proud of that. Um, but yeah, he's a Cubs fan, unfortunately. <laughs> That's okay. We can forgive him. We can forgive him for that. Um, you guys are here September 30th. It's at the Monarch Tavern. You're, you're playing with Ellis, who is a, a local act who's uh, also terrific. Um, really looking forward to that. Really looking forward to the album and really looking forward to hearing your report from Guaranteed Rate Field tonight about hopefully another Blue Jays victory. I'm sorry, Julia. <laughs> I will be reporting live from the field. Can't wait. And yeah, thanks so much for listening and thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Julia. Uh, Julia Steiner, lead singer of, of Rap Boys. Again, The Window is out August 25th. Uh, the Window of the Album is out August 25th. The Window, the song and video is out now. You can check it out. Uh, you can go to rapboysband.com to see more from them. And they're here September 30th uh, with Ellis at Monarch Tavern. Uh, very cool. And uh, the state of White Sox fandom does not seem particularly uh, great right now. It's a, it's a little... It's a little tough with how that team is going. Uh, Higher expectations than fourth in the AL Central. They're 37 and 50 right now. But as we talked about with Joe Siddle, as we talked about heading into this series, the Jays can't really approach it like that. They are not playing good enough baseball themselves to take anyone lightly. So that's the state of White Sox fandom. The state of Blue Jays fandom is kind of on you guys. So you can keep texting into 590-590. We got a couple texts here. Uh, We'll sprinkle them in in the back half of the show after we're done talking to Ben Nicholson-Smith around 11. We also, we can do a little bit more on uh, the Alec Manoa side of things. I I alluded to John Schneider's comments earlier, and uh, I'm just going to play them here so you have the full context of them. And so I'm not paraphrasing. This was John Schneider kind of breaking it to reporters kind of out of nowhere yesterday that uh, Manoa will get the nod on Friday against the Tigers. 
With everything that he's been working on, mechanically, um, you know, strike throwing, things like that, we've been saying all along there's kind of a, there's been a pretty good checklist of things that we wanted to see. Um, minor tweak mechanically, we, we like what we saw in terms of comparing it to last year to now, um, as opposed to the beginning of this year. And, you know, he's, he's in the zone. Um, Vila was holding, I think last pitch was 95 um, of his outing. So it's uh, a dude that can obviously help us. Was this uh, a lot sooner than you guys had thought it would be? No, I mean, we didn't really put a time frame on it, you know. It was not, you know, we always said from day one, like, he'll tell us when he's ready um, with the work that he's doing and then kind of just putting the results um, aside and just kind of really focusing on the things that he was down there working on. So, um, again, he's a big part of our team, you know, both this year and going forward. So um, if we feel like he's ready to come back and contribute, we're going we're gonna to go ahead and pull the trigger. So the interesting question that flows from that beyond just how Alec Manoa looks is what the corresponding moves are. So we know, for example, that Trevor Richards will now go from part-time opener and part-time leverage guy back to full-time leverage guy, which should have a positive effect on Swanson, Romano, Meza. Uh, the interesting question elsewhere in the bullpen becomes who who is out when... Alec Manoa returns because as a product of only having four starters, the Jays have been able to carry nine relievers. Now the two guys who make the most sense are Bowden Francis and Thomas Hatch. They've been the guys at the end of that bullpen who have gone up and down a little bit. Um, Honestly, both of them are going to be optioned down sooner than later, I would think, because Adam Simber was around the club yesterday. Uh, Zach Pop had another rehab appearance yesterday at AAA, although that did not go particularly well. Um, so we'll we'll see what the status is on him. Eventually, Chad Green and Hyunjin Ryu could be in the mix. Um, I I would probably lean toward as good as he's been uh, as a bulk guy for this team. I would probably lean toward Bowden Francis going down to AAA because I think it would be great to keep him stretched out as an actual six starter instead of using him an inning at a time or, or two innings when you know a starter gets chased early, especially heading into the all-star break here. Be nice to get him a start and make sure he's fully stretched out, whereas Thomas Hatch is more of a, a true reliever at this point. We'll see what Ben Nicholson-Smith thinks about it. We'll see what Ben Nicholson-Smith thinks about a whole lot of things. When he joins us next, then Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and sports at 360. Everything Raptors before and after the games. The Raptor Show with Will Liu. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Uh, you can keep your texts coming to 590, 590. We'll get to uh, some of them in the back half of this hour. I'm in control of the questions for the next little bit, though. I have so many of them for Ben Nicholson Smith, uh, as I always do. Uh, we were texting yesterday as the Alec Manoa news came out. Uh, ben was already scheduled to be on with us. It's just, geez, I wonder what we might talk about. I wonder what we might talk about uh, before we get to Alec Manoa, though. Ben Nicholson-Smith, Blue Jays win yesterday against the Chicago White Sox. Uh, how are you doing, and is everything fixed? Uh, well, um, everything is not fixed. <laughs> uh, so um, that applies uh, to a lot of things with the Blue Jays right now. Um, but, hey, a big swing from Vlad Guerrero Jr. can go a long way toward masking some of the issues that persists with this team. So uh, they'll take the win. They definitely needed it and still a lot more work to do. 
So uh, Vlad has heated up a little bit here. If you go back to the Oakland series uh, where he hit a couple of home runs at home for the first time, over the last 10 games, he has four home runs, and he has a, an OPS north of 1,000, almost as high as 1,100. Um, you, I talked to Joe Siddle a little earlier about some of you know the mechanical stuff going on with Vlad, but, but from an approach and just kind of how you feel when he's at the dish perspective, are, are you starting to get the sense Vlad's turning a corner? Absolutely, yeah. I think that you know we saw from the early part of May after he left the game in Pittsburgh with a wrist issue, the power just disappeared, and whether that was connected to the wrist or not, we don't know at this point. We can make our guesses, but the reality is uh, he was not hitting like Vlad Guerrero Jr. He was hitting like Yandy Diaz, which is a good hitter. I mean, it's a guy who hits for a good average and puts the ball in play and is tough to strike out. But, you know, Vlad Guerrero Jr. should be on a different level, and we're seeing him now look more like a 30 or 40 homer hitter, and that's necessary for this team because – you know, you look at this lineup, and it's a good lineup. I know that some people listening to that will say, no, it's not, as they're driving or listening. And I know it's been a tough stretch, but this is a good lineup. The fact is, though, it's not getting any better anytime soon. They, If they're going to improve, it has to come from within. There's no one in the minors who's going to come up and transform this. There's no one who's injured. This is it. This is the A lineup for the Blue Jays. And so... They need guys like Vlad Guerrero Jr. and Alejandro Kirk, by the way, uh, to step up and to start doing some more things offensively. They do, and at least with Vlad, you know, we're starting to see it. He takes a, a high away pitch over the right field fence. He, he had a nice opposite field single earlier in the game, and while it was on the, you know, it, it was a ground ball, it's still a, a good plate appearance and things like that. And again, if you look at some of the hard hit stuff for Vlad, you know, fifth in expected results since May 30th, things like that. Um, when it comes to Vlad and, you know, finding or, or expanding this power stroke. I know we've joked around about it a little bit at the ballpark and on this show a little bit, but having sat with it a bit, do you think something like the home run derby could be good for him, whether from a, a psychological standpoint or just, Hey, this is what it feels like to hit 91 home runs in a short order. Yeah. I mean, I, I think his swing is fine now. So I don't think it's something that needs fixing. If he continues like this for another few months, the blue Jays will be very, very happy. So you know, I'm not looking at the home run derby as something <clears throat> that needs to transform Vladdy, but it's always a good thing when hitters have fun. It's always a good thing when players are able to, you know, connect to the more joyful part of the game, um, which the home run derby certainly brings out. And, you know, a million dollar prize doesn't hurt for a guy <laughs> who's still, you know, is in his early arbitration years. Um, so I, I think that I think it's always a fun event. I love the home run derby. I think they should make it shorter. Uh, I think it's too long, but that's another story. But, you know, I think that watching guys like Adley Rushman, I, I can't wait to watch Adley Rushman in it. I can't wait to watch Vladdy in it. It's a great event. And um, if Vladdy can have some fun, he has a couple of days off afterwards to recover from what I'm sure will be, you know, <laughs> some soreness um, with the number of swings they take. But I don't think it's a bad thing, um, and maybe it could be a slight positive for a guy who has been you know, struggling at times this year, and, and maybe it's a chance for a little reset. 
So you mentioned Adley Rutschman. I've asked a couple people on the show this week who their pick is in the Derby. And for anyone who, who missed it, it's Vladimir Guerrero Jr., Randy Rosarena, Adley Rutschman, Pete Alonso, who beat Vlad in the finals back in 2019, even though Vlad set a record for home runs, uh, Mookie Betts, and Julio Rodriguez. Is your Adley excitement also an endorsement of Adley as the eventual champion? Well, no. Um, I um, even though I, uh, you know, have a track record of um, of picking Adley Rushman as, as rookie <laughs> of the year ballots will we'll, we'll reflect last year. Um, no, I will not pick him to win the home run derby. I do think he's going to have a, a blast. Like he is going to have so much fun in the home run derby. Um, it's going to be fun to watch him in it. His dad is pitching to him, so that'll be awesome. But I don't think he's going to win. I, I, how can you go against Pete Alonso? Like Pete Alonso is the is the choice so i I think pete alonso is going to win it interesting so yeah i mean he's got obviously has the i mean he has a home run derby championship he has uh he's hit about a billion of them this year as well hard to pick against him but i do like now so i've asked a couple guests we have an arosa reina pick an adley rutchman pick and a pete alonso pick three three guests three different picks so uh, i'll go ahead i heard morosi pick arosa reina who picked adley uh, it was uh, Clinton Yates was on with us yesterday and, and picked him. So, um, yeah, we've got uh, maybe we'll continue to ask throughout the week and someone will take Mookie, someone will take J-Rod, uh, and then I'll at the very end, you know, play the hometown favorite and pick Vlad to pop the crowd on Friday or something like that. Nice. That's a good call. Someone's got, someone's got to do it. Yeah. Um, so also within that game last night, a uh, pretty solid start from Chris Bassett. He gives up three earned over six innings. Uh, the one mistake pitch to Luis Robert Jr., who after he took that one 450 feet, I was like, huh, maybe he should be in the home run derby too. Um, but Bassett's had a pretty nice response these last two games after a stretch of struggling. Um, another righty heavy lineup ahead in Detroit on the weekend for him. Uh, do you like the the response from Bassett over this last little bit? Yeah, I really do. Um, I think that it's really been a successful first half for Bassett. And, you know, you look at that three-year deal, you feel pretty good about that contract if you're the Blue Jays. Bassett has, has pitched great. He's been a number three starter on a, on a good team. Like, that's the level of production that he's providing. You would be comfortable handing him the ball in a playoff start. Ideally, it would be against a lineup like the White Sox or the Tigers that's used very right-handed. Um, and his sinker-sweeper combination can work really well against uh, a team like that. But even against uh, some some other teams, um, he's been a very, very good pitcher. Um, I, I think that even broadly, like you look at this Blue Jays rotation and their free agent spending and Bassett and Gosman and Kikuchi, you know, they've, they've done a nice job there. If only they had done some more player development and kind of backfilled internally a bit more, then maybe we wouldn't have been watching them run out of bullpen games, but um, free agent wise Bassett has been a, a big part of some successes for them as they've, um, as they've gone out to the free agent market to bolster this rotation. He's also been, you know, one of the most outspoken players on this team, not only when he doesn't perform, but you know, the, the accountability and honesty that this team hasn't played uh, their best baseball yet. He said last night, I don't even think we're close to our potential. I think by far the best baseball we have is to come. Ben, I, I think we can both agree. And people who had high expectations for this team entering the year can agree that they have not played their best baseball so far. It seemed like only one thing is clicking at, at a time. And if things line up, you know, they, they have one six game winning streak from back at the end of April, but otherwise, you know, we're talking, Hey, their hot stretches are six and three 
stretches and things like that. Um, at what point do you like, like what is your level of belief that they will be able to find that, Hey, we're playing our, our best baseball. We're playing closer to our potential. Obviously there is a lot of baseball yet to come, but we're almost 90 games in here and haven't really seen it with any sustained length of time. Yeah. And the teams that do sustain it are the ones that cruise into a division title. And those are the teams that are, you know, elite ball clubs, maybe like Atlanta um, or Tampa. And it's a lot to ask. I think that it was a reasonable ask of the Blue Jays entering this year that they could be threatening for a division title and they could be one of those elite teams. Hasn't happened so far. I mean, that's pretty clear. And they still have a lot of time. So I think that there's a chance for them to play their best baseball in the course of the next 70 or so games. Um, They'll certainly need to because they have ground to make up in the wild card race over Houston or the Yankees or Baltimore or some combination of those three. Um, so, yeah, my, my level of confidence, I would say, is pretty high. I think that they are a talented group. Um, they have a lot of time remaining. Um, but I, I also think that, you know, we can't sit here just waiting and assuming that they're going to get to a point that their pitching and their defense and their hitting is all going to click at once for this sustained period of time. I think that for most teams, for most good teams, there's some aspect of your team that isn't clicking most of the time, and you have to win games in spite of that. And then you have the occasional team, like the Blue Jays at the end of 2021 or the Blue Jays at the end of 2015 or you know, Atlanta so far the entire season this year where it's all clicking at once, and it just feels you know incredible, and that's all rolling. But for most teams, that's not the way it goes. No, it's not. And you have to kind of figure it out. But and, you know, they don't have to win 15 in a row. I'd settle for like, hey, win 10 of 12 or something like that. I'm a reasonable person, Ben. Um, so one more one more thing from last night before we, we turn to Alec Manoa and some of the bigger picture stuff that, that's going to flow from that conversation. Um, Jordan Romano up against Berger and Cola went heavy on the slider. Uh, what did you stupid puns aside? What did you make of Romano going? I think it was 11 of the 13 pitches he threw were sliders going away from the fastball in, in that chunk of the White Sox order. Wow. Burger and Cola. I just realized that. Um, so and yeah, slider. I mean, come on, man. It was, I mean, I was watching last night. It didn't even cross my mind, but um, yeah, as for Romano and the way that he pitched um, his slider was pretty nasty last night. There was tons of movement on it and uh, he just kept going to it. We've seen him go to that pitch a ton. I'm sure we'll continue to see him go to that pitch a ton. Um, really works nicely against, again, that right-handed uh, lineup that the White Sox have. And he looked dominant. I, I think that it's been a great season for him. And he's someone that the Jays are obviously going to need because, you know, you think about the ultimate goal for this team, and I don't think it's changed. Um, I think that they still could. I, again, I'm not saying it's likely, but they could make a World Series run, and that is their goal here. And to do that, you're going to need to win four playoff series, and there's no way they win four playoff series without a healthy and effective Jordan Romano. They don't, and, you know, the healthy element of that is uh, a reasonable pivot point to Alec Manoa returning because we've talked a lot, Ben, about the trickle-down effect of Alec Manoa being in the minors, running a four-man rotation and getting a little less rest for your main starters, pulling Trevor Richards out of a leverage spot to use him as an opener so that Jordan Romano, Eric Swanson, Tim Meza, and, and to some extent Jimmy Garcia are maybe a little overextended. If Alec Manoa were to return and have success 
in a, you know, we'll, we'll call him the fifth starter for now, just nominally, uh, if he were to have some success in that role, that could be a big thing for not only the the length guys in the bullpen who aren't being asked to do bullpen days, but also for the back end of the bullpen because, you know, John Schneider can operate his bullpen with Richards and leverage and with, um, you know, a, a, an idea of not needing a bullpen day every couple games out. Um, before we get to the specifics of Manoa, how big do you think this could be for John Schneider and his bullpen if Manoa can even be a, a reasonable fifth starter from here? Yes, yeah, so um, just speaking about the, the bullpen and leaving the Manoa part aside for now, I think that this has the potential to be very, very good for the bullpen because you know we've seen Trevor Richards really take a step forward this year, and I know he's still a guy who can allow some homers. Um, that's part of his profile as a pitcher, but he, he's a really, really effective arm to have. Um, and if you're up you know, 4-1 in the 6th or 7th, I mean, that's a perfect situation to bring him in um, obviously, you know, someone leaves the game early, you need to bridge um, a few innings, you know, the extra innings game that goes, that goes long, Trevor Richards is perfect for that. So there are a lot of situations where he brings a lot of value. And as long as he was pitching every, well, let's call it once a week, because it wasn't exactly every five days, but if he's going three, four innings once a week for you, then that really reduces your flexibility with Richards and it forces you to, I don't know, use Jimmy Garcia three times in four days or use Mitch White and leverage when you don't want to. So the trickle down can be pretty big there. It certainly can. So the other trickle down is, you know, someone will come out of this bullpen. I have my own opinion on on what might make the most sense in terms of maintaining, you know, triple a length depth and things like that. Uh, Do you have a lean on on what you would, obviously things can change between now and Friday, but, but if things are as they stand now, um, do you have a lean on on who the odd man out would be and why? Oh, I mean, I think that the way I look at these things is really game to game. And so, I would look at that Friday game and try to make that call once you are in front of that game. So, uh, you know, not knowing who has pitched um, today and tomorrow makes it really, really, really tough because if someone pitches a lot, then you're going to have an easy decision. Like if Thomas Hatch goes 40 pitches on on Thursday, he's going to be the guy. So uh, I just haven't even got to that point yet. That's fair. Uh, my lean was, if you care to hear it, is uh, Bowden Francis going down just to keep him stretched out and maybe, you know, hey, next time this kind of thing comes up because you're probably not going to be able to operate with just five starters all second half of the season too. Uh, you have someone down there who is a, a reasonable sixth starter. I, I don't know that they see that for Francis beyond just being a bulk guy, but that would be my lean. D- does that make any sense to you? Uh, you know, again, barring what happens to today and tomorrow. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he's certainly not someone you're using in a high leverage game um, in a, in a game where you're up, you know, one or two runs. Um, so the length is nice to have, but not necessary. So I think that makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you agree. That always makes me feel better about my my opinion. So uh, Alec Manoa is going to return Friday. That's why we're having this conversation of the trickle down. Uh, I have sufficiently buried the lead on that conversation. So you hear the news yesterday from John Schneider, kind of out of nowhere, that Alec Manoa is going to return and start Friday against the Tigers. What was your initial reaction? Well, you know. I- I was wondering how they were, and we actually texted about this yesterday, how they were going to approach um, getting through those six games leading into the all-star break. And so 
I had it in the back of my mind, and I, I asked Shy about this too, like, hey, what do you think? Um, what do you think they could do here? So I was wondering, like, is there any chance that they could bring Manoa back? But I didn't think it was likely. And I didn't think it was likely because, you know, after one bad start, it wasn't time to overreact, in my opinion, uh, because it is a process. And I, I thought the same logic would hold after one good start where, you know, he's had a really good start, but this is a guy who's working through a lot of things mechanically and even mentally, and they want to make sure he's, he's fully on track. So yeah, I, I am a little surprised. Now I can see the positives. I can, I can see, Hey, the Tigers are on a great lineup. They're very, very right-handed. You know, Manoa's uh, certainly had a great start at double a, but to me, you know, there's still a lot of risk here and yeah, there's huge upside. We, we saw the upside last year. We saw the upside in 2021, We've also seen that there's a lot of downside here. And I, I don't know. I, I probably would have asked him to make another start in the minors if it was me. But, you know, and, and I've heard from people in the game who view it similarly. Um, but we'll see. I mean, it might work out really, really well. And it would be a great story if it does. It would. And I think the if it works out really well is an easy, like, I, I don't know that I need to ask you, hey, what, what do things look like if this works out well? Well, it looks like Alec Manoa is back in the rotation like we all expected, and the uh, and the, the team has a, an actual major league rotation and isn't doing bullpen days and things like that. But there is a component of this where what if it doesn't go well? Now, let's say, you know, whether it's against the Tigers or whether it's his first start out of the All-Star break because they do have a tough schedule coming up out of the All-Star break, let, let's say he stumbles again and and I'm not talking like a 450 ERA or a 5 ERA. I think they would just live with that at, at this point if Alec Manoa could give them, you know, three runs over five every time out, which is a 540 ERA. I, I think they'd take that over doing the bullpen day thing. But let's say it really doesn't work out. At that point, do you think they would have to look at things as, hey, this is, uh, you know, you, you almost can't even expect him back at any point this year? Well, I wouldn't go that far. I, you know, I think that it's always kind of start to start. Um, and I, I think you kind of look at how he's doing it, what the velocity looks like, obviously what the delivery looks like, um, you know, and, and the results too. I agree with you, by the way. I think, you know, if he can give them three runs over five, like you said, it's not a great ERA, but they would take that in a second. I mean, they don't need him to be at the top of this rotation especially the way Jose Barrios has, has bounced back for the most part this year. Um, so uh, I think it's, it's still very much start to start. Now, I don't think you bring Alec Manoa back um, to have him, you know, uh, make one start and then option him again. I mean, clearly the, the presumption is that now that he's back, he's got at least a runway of, let's say, three starts in the major leagues at, at minimum. Um, to to prove that the adjustments that he made in the course of that month in the minor leagues have paid off. But, you know, this is a team that needs to win. They don't have a lot of room for error. And so if Manoa really struggles, they are going to have to evaluate and reevaluate and make changes, just as they would with any pitcher who struggles for an extended period. 
It's uh, it's a tough spot from uh, how do you manage it if it goes poorly? Uh, obviously, the trade-off here is that if it goes well, everything kind of snaps into place a, l- a little bit easier. Um, the element of this where they have selected the Detroit Tigers to be his return, I, I don't want to sleep on a team. I know they've been better over the last 30 days. They're a team that can take a walk. Um, some of their young players ha- have started to hit a little bit better of late. But when you look at that team that is still a cellar dweller and doesn't have the kind of lefties that have given Manoa and worth noting guys like Chris Bassett um, trouble this year. Do you, how how big a component of the, of this decision do you think was getting him a start against the team that at least on paper, if he's a decent version of Alec Manoa should have a pretty good landing spot here. Yeah, I, I do think it would have factored in. I mean, if, the Jays are playing the Texas Rangers this weekend. I think there's a good chance they start Manoa in the minors um, instead of instead of debuting him against one of the better or Atlanta, right? One of the better offenses in the league. So, yeah, I, I think it's a factor, and I think that if there's a major league lineup for Manoa to do well against, honestly, it's like yeah, the Nationals or the White Sox, or the Tigers. These are the teams that you would want him facing. But and so in that in that sense, they are setting him up for success. The thing is. This one counts in the major league standings. Mm -hmm. So you could say the Tigers are a quad A lineup, but it counts in the real standings and the way things are going for the Blue Jays, they might win or lose a playoff berth by one game. You know, that's clearly they're not giving themselves a lot of room for error here. So whatever they're doing, this this applies to absolutely every roster move they make, and there's no doubt they take these decisions seriously, but you know, every single move they make has the potential to inform that one game that might decide whether they are in or out, whether they are home or road. I mean, there's some pretty big stakes here as the Blue Jays move ahead. There are. Um, so let, let's say, you know, okay, so if it's the Detroit Tigers, we, we can agree that it's a, a good landing spot for him and, you know, not to the extent it was in double-A. Obviously, these are major league hitters, but we're going to be looking for more than just the stat line out of Alec Manoa on Friday. Um, what is foremost of mind for you as you sit down Friday to watch Alec Manoa start? What, what's the, you know, the 1A or 1B thing you might be looking for from him? Well, 1A is throwing strikes. Um, is he in the zone? You know, that's, he has to be in the zone, um, and that has to be in the zone early in counts. So that's the first thing. Second would be velo. Uh, you know, you want to see 93s, and you know, you don't want to see him 91 sitting 91 with the fastball. Um, so you want to see him 93s touching 94. Um, and then third, and you know, I'm not a scout, but I will be looking at his delivery for the kind of comfort. Um, and is he? You know, taking a lot of time, you know, going behind the mound and changing out balls and and laboring and and conversing with his catcher, presumably Kirk, um, you know, as the game progresses. Or is he looking comfortable? Is he in rhythm? Is he pitching uh, with a sense of purpose? Is he looking smooth mechanically? Those are the sort of things that I would look for as well. So, um, yeah, I think strikes, velo, and then comfort on the mound. Uh, Another question that flows from the Manoa thing and look I will preface this by saying Alec Manoa really struggled at the major league level there was every reason to option him down and help him figure this out 
um, there was no reason to, well, there were reasons to rush him back, but there were risks with rushing him back as well. Ben, you noted on Twitter yesterday that the result of this could end up costing Alec Manoa a, a decent chunk of money when it comes to the arbitration process and his super two eligibility for someone who doesn't understand that or didn't catch that tweet. Can you run us through um, what the impact of this might be on Alec Manoa contractually if he you know if he gets back on track to where an extension or his next contract is a relevant factor to the conversation again how could this month plus in the minors uh, affect Manoa's future yeah so basically in, in really simple terms players like going to arbitration that is a good thing if you're a player because in arbitration you can compare yourself to other players and you can earn a few million dollars it's not free agent money but it's good money so arbitration is a good thing now some players get to go to arbitration four times instead of three. And if you get to go to arbitration four times, that means four years where you're actually making pretty good money. So this is guys like Vlad Jr., Josh Donaldson. They are the ones who are at the top of their service class as far as days on a roster. That entitles them to a fourth shot at ARB. And Manoa was on track to be able to get that four times in arbitration. Those are called Super 2 players, as you know, Blake. So... If you're in that position, that's great. And that's how things were trending for Manoa until the Blue Jays sent him down for that month. So that month of minor league time means he was not accruing major league service for whatever it was, 31 days. That then will take him out of the group of players that goes to arbitration four times, put him into the group of players that goes to arbitration three times. So it doesn't affect his timeline to free agency but it means that on his way to free agency, he is now positioned to earn less money. Which has an impact on certainly what he's going to earn. And this is a guy who has rejected the the small standard raise. The, the Blue Jays have given their pre-arb players similar to how Bo Bichette did in recent years. And, and Bo Bichette versus Vladimir Guerrero Jr. is also a good comparison of how how your salaries look if you're uh, if you're you get that extra year of arb where Vlad, Vlad Guerrero Jr. makes significantly more than Bo Bichette, even though they're around the same age and roughly the same experience because Vlad got to that extra arb year a little earlier. It's, it's also one of those things where this only really matters if things get back on track for Alec Manoa in a good way and you're sitting down and you're talking extension with him because it's not just about what he's going to earn, say, next year and the year after that, but that arb number not being there or, or that ARB number being lower changes the accounting of a potential extension as well. Right, Ben? Absolutely. Yeah. Because extensions are built around what you would earn in your ARB years. And you know, those are approximate, but um, you can make some very, very good guesses on that. So yeah, you know, for Manoa, this looks like, you know, uh, a, a shift that will impact his earnings substantially. Now, that can be said of any player who underperforms for three months. And so, you know, even for Vlad Jr., who, who goes out there and has a subpar first half, that likely has impacted how you would project an extension for him, not that he's on the brink of signing one mm-hmm. with the Blue Jays. So, you know, for these major league players, the, the performance of the last few months, it's, it's always true that you can swing your potential earnings or your projected earnings to a huge degree in a matter of months or even weeks. Um, so that pressure is there um, at, at all times. But but for Manoa, we can pinpoint it a little more specifically because within this last month, he went from four times going to ARB to three times going to, to ARB. 
Yeah, and, and that's a pretty significant move. So um, let's let's pivot off of Manoa here. He is he has a 40-man spot, so we don't have to worry about that. It's just someone from the pen, probably Hatcher Francis, will get optioned down. Maybe both of them, if Zach Pop, you know, after another rehab appearance yesterday, is ready to go, although that didn't, uh, that didn't go particularly well uh, for Zach Pop, so we'll see. But you also tweeted recently, Ben, that you could see some 40 man juggling coming up for the Toronto Blue Jays. Hyunjin Ryu started the, uh, he, he made a, a minor league start yesterday and that starts a 30 day clock on his rehab assignment before the Jays would have to make a decision on activating him. Chad green continues to progress. We will of course see trade deadline acquisitions and I can't wait for post all-star Ben, when we get to do just sit down and go through trade targets for like an hour together. Um, but when you, when you look at that 40 man juggling, that's ahead um, what was front of mind when you tweeted that out and what moves could we see in the not immediate future, maybe, but but over the next couple of weeks that aren't trade deadline moves. They're they're just kind of those roster balancing moves uh, to make sure there's room for a Ryu, for a green, for what's to come. Well, yeah, I think it's it's actually going to be pretty interesting to see what the Blue Jays do here, because right now their 40 man is full and that's not even counting Ryu and green who right. technically don't count against that roster, as you know. So, you know, basically you're looking at some churn that's going to happen. And of course, 40 man rosters are made to be changed. They're never, you know, constant for more than, you know, a couple of weeks at a time at most. Um, but I think that we're looking at a period of time where there's even more change than, than usual. That's, that's likely to come, especially if you look at guys like a Connor Cook or a Davis Schneider in the minor leagues, should they be added to the 40-man roster at any point this season, they will need room as well. So then you start looking at who is going to go off because some guys are going to have to be taken off this roster. And, you know, you could look at, I mean, is Hagen Danner, has he done enough? Has Leo Jimenez in the minor leagues, uh, an infielder at double-A, has he done enough for even Otto Lopez? Um, you know, I, I don't know. They, those guys would have some trade value, though. So, you know, if you're looking at having to take some players off the major league roster to begin with, and your existing guys do have some trade value, there's value in just coming up with some sort of a trade, whether it's to upgrade your major league team to acquire someone who's off the 40 man roster in the minor leagues with another organization who doesn't require a 40 man spot to deepen the organization elsewhere. I mean, there's some things that you can do potentially without just DFAing a guy and getting nothing back. And so that leads me to the speculation and that's, that's what it is, but speculation that the blue Jays might be making some sort of deal. And you could also point to the major league roster. I mean, if you're in trades, I'm not saying Mitch white would have like a ton of trade value because clearly he wouldn't, but does he go back in another deal? Cause that might be, you know, major league roster for major league roster. One of the ways that the blue Jays can look at things um, as they move ahead in the next few weeks here even just something like, you know, a version of Mitch White that has options. So that gives you a little bit of, of flexibility as you manage the up and down because Mitch White doesn't have options right now. Uh, just while we're on Mitch White, I should note that Alex DeJesus, the other part of that Nick Frasso trade that that people are, are justifiably anxious about because Nick Frasso has been so good. Alex DeJesus hit for the cycle yesterday uh, with high A Vancouver. So thumbs up. Things are moving in the right direction on that trade, Ben. Well, yeah, exactly. It was the... It was the it's the double twist, you know. First, you think the Blue Jays have lost that trade, and then it's like, no, they, they pull a fast one on the Dodgers. This guy's the next Ellie De La Cruz. No, no, I'm I'm just uh, that's that's definitely not the case. But we'll see. I mean, these trades these trades take a long time. I actually think 
You know, I mentioned the Jays' free agency track record earlier. I think they've been really good in free agency. I think they've been really good in trades. You look at a lot of the players in this roster, whether it's Chapman, whether it's Merrifield, they've done a really nice job. Teoscar Hernandez, obviously, years ago, that was a steal. It's really the development. You know, that's where the missing piece is for this team, where they don't have quite as many prospects coming up um, that they've internally developed. And, And that's kind of the missing link. Um, that maybe would separate the Blue Jays from where they are and where they'd want to be. Uh, Nick Frasso, by the way, has, uh, I know there was a ton of uh, excitement and angst around the numbers he's putting up, obviously still striking out a ton of guys. He's been shelled in four of his last five appearances at double A for the Dodgers as well. Not that you want to wish negatively on a guy, but I think we can at least, you know, recenter ourselves on that trade ahead of this year's uh, trade season. Uh, you mentioned de- developmentally, Ben, I-, I know a name that you you had also mentioned of, hey, maybe this is a guy who needs a 40-man spot because he could help the bullpen if there's a need in the bullpen at, at some point for swing and missed up. Uh, what have you heard on, on Connor Cook, the double A arm who kind of got the bump from high A and is one of the highest strikeout guys in, in a bullpen in all of minor league baseball? Tons of strikeouts, tons of strikeouts. And as, as you know, I, I hadn't heard about this guy very much until recently, but asked around a little about him, and it sounds like he really has impressed uh, Blue Jays people. And it sounds as though, you know, you look at the fastball, which is 95-96. You look at a, a really hard slider, uh, which has been really effective for him. And the results do speak for themselves. I mean, if you can strike out half the hitters you're facing in Double A then you can pitch in the major leagues. And how long that is, I don't know. Um, how effectively, where, what shape that takes, it's, it's hard to predict. But he can and will pitch in the major leagues if this continues and possibly as soon as this year. So uh, that's pretty intriguing. Now, you do not want to be, as a contending team, you don't want to be pointing to a guy who started the season in A-ball and saying, yeah, that's going to turn our season around. You know, <laughs> That's got to be a bonus. That can't be anything you're counting on. But we all know how much churn there is in the bullpen in the course of a season. And as you know, as this is a team right now, um, knock on wood, that is actually pretty healthy, but that won't last all season. So they will need reinforcements and a guy like cook could be one of them. What will last though, Ben is uh, your great hits here on Jay's talk plus. Thanks so much for taking the time out this morning, buddy. You got it, Blake. Have a good one. And thanks for having me on. Ben Nicholson Smith, MLB editor at sportsnet.com. CA uh, and converted Connor Cook fan ready to go um, before we take a break we're, we're going to answer more of your questions so you can text them to 590 590 in the last uh, segment here I just wanted to say uh, happy birthday to my close personal friend Shohei Otani uh, surely him and I'll be celebrating together later um, <laughs> we're going to take a break uh, your questions it's mailbag time next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360 Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. We got about 15 minutes with you here before we kick it over to Sports at Today with Matt and Daniele, um, the Merrick Show, over for the season. Kipper and Bourne, over for the season. Uh, the Raptor Show with Will Lou, not entirely over because Will's headed down to, to Vegas for Summer League, so he'll have some stuff for you. But uh, yeah, there's going to be some lineup juggling here, especially in the slots 
uh, following me. I, they got to give me some lineup protection. So, the, so they're tagging in Matt and Daniela today. Uh, we've got a bunch of your texts in the text line. Won't get to them all, but but I'll uh, I'll pocket the ones we don't get to uh, and continue to try to sprinkle them in throughout the week. Eddie in Fort Erie has a Manoa take. He truly believes that if Manoa doesn't pitch well against the Tigers, then it might be the end of the Blue Jays season and make them sellers at the deadline. Uh, if he pitches well, that gives them some form of optimism and confidence uh, to be buyers and add another reliever or bat. Eddie, I can understand that that concern, but this team is too leveraged right now to uh, turn into sellers. I, I don't think it's realistic. I don't think it's realistic with their proximity to a playoff spot in the standings. I, I think this front office would, even though they don't want to admit this, I, I think they would look at something like last year's Philadelphia Phillies team, who was pretty in pretty rough shape around this time and just snuck their way into the playoffs and kept the opportunity open uh, to get hot at the right time. I, I think this team has enough to at least believe that they could do that. They're also very leveraged from a payroll standpoint. Um, and not that that is, you know, you don't want to fall into the sunk cost fallacy and chase bad money with good money. But when you are paying into the competitive balance tax and you are only a game or two out of the playoffs, it's a, it's a pretty hard turn to then be sellers um, on top of which, you know, a lot of the pieces the Jays have acquired and built right now are supposed to be for more than this year. If you were to turn and be sellers, Kiermaier, Belt, Merrifield, uh, even a Matt Chapman, those guys could certainly be on the table and bring you back something nice. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think they're moving any of the pitchers they've invested in, certainly not moving any of the core pieces. So I, I don't think there's that much riding on one Manoa starter. I, I do think if he struggles, though, it changes your accounting of what the needs are at the deadline. And look, I love Hyunjin Ryu. I think it's awesome. He's on his way back. He is a guy in his mid thirties coming off Tommy John, who was throwing 88 in his la in his first rehab start. Now that'll tick up. This was his first start. You're probably not giving it 10,000%. He's got to work his way back up. If that can get to even 90, I, I want to see him and I want to see him back in the major league level. I don't know that I'm penciling him at him in as SP five uh, until we see a little bit more. So I do think there's that component riding on Manoa's start, certainly, uh, but not the entire direction of the franchise. Um, someone who didn't sign there says assuming health and success, do we run a Manoa Ryu six man rotation once they're back? I think, and the, the person's question is about getting some extra rest for a blue Jays starting staff that uh, has been pretty heavily worked. Now the counter to that, when you're running a six man rotation, you're only allowed 13 pitchers on the roster, at least until September. So, running a six band rotation means you're running a shorter bullpen. And that's also a bullpen that's been kind of overworked. So this is where it can get a little complicated. Obviously if Manoa and Ryu are ready to go and pitching, well, that's one of those good problems you figure it out. I do wonder though, if the move rather than a six man rotation might be, you know, let's say Ryu gets built up to three, four innings. Is he kind of a bulk follower off of whichever starter is struggling at that time. Is he slotting in as a sixth starter only when there's a big stretch of schedule and otherwise being a long man out of the pen? I'm not really sure. It's a reasonable question because Gosman and Bassett and Barrios are all top 25 in innings pitch so far. Um, and the, you know, the back end of the bullpen has been worked, but that's the cost with a six man rotation. At least if it happens in August, uh, the cost there is, will you shorten your bullpen? 
much more doable in September when rosters expand and you have a little bit more flexibility there, even with the shorter roster expansion than in years past. A couple questions about Nelson Cruz, whether the Jays could add a guy like that. The Padres just DFA'd him uh, on yesterday, on, on Tuesday. So if you look at Cruz, he's 43 at this point. Um, he is a right-handed bat. That is obviously something that this team could use. They are yet to produce a lefty versus lefty home run this year. And as much as, uh, you know, as much as the lefties they've added have really contributed, um, there is still an element of a need for some, the other side of the platoon to have some strength, you know, or they're, they're not using Ernie Clement as a, as a pinch hitter uh, as valuable as he's been as a defensive and and running guy. Um, He's not a bat that is making any manager kind of change their thinking. So could Nelson Cruz's bat be a fit? The, The first question you, the second question you have to ask is where would he play? Well, he has played one inning in the field, uh, since I don't know. He hasn't played the outfield since 2018 and he's played eight innings at first base uh, in his career, including one inning this year. So he is, he would basically be getting signed as a pinch hitter specialist. And then maybe he takes some DH days against left-handed pitching um, because, you know, Alejandro Kirk hasn't been gangbusters or or whatever. You want to buy him some extra rest. Uh, So that's the next question that flows. Nelson Cruz was not hitting particularly well with San Diego. He didn't hit particularly well with Washington last year. Um, Not terribly, but you know, he, he had a weighted runs created plus that came in around 85. So about 15% less than, uh, you know, than, than league average there. And it wasn't significantly better. Um, Actually he hit righties better this year before getting released than, than he had hit lefties. So um, there are some warts there. And for a guy who is 43, you wonder if maybe just, you know, a little bit of bat speed has gone too much. I will say though, that as far as guys who are free and you could kick the tires on, if there's a right-handed bat that can hit home runs, I'm kicking those tires. I'm seeing if he's willing to come in on a, on a minimum or something like that. I think it's a reasonable thing to ask uh, for sure. Again, someone who didn't sign. Put your name and location. I'm supposed to remind you guys of that, but uh, I forget. So I can't shout you out. Anyway, uh, with the trade deadline approaching and Manoa hopefully rounding out the rotation, the Jays' focus should be another bat who plays left field. Uh, Varsho's the worst qualified hitter on the team per WRC+. Um, His skill set is more suited for a fourth outfielder. Um, Okay, so to whoever sent this in, uh, certainly on on numbers, Varsho has has been a little behind the rest of the Jays at the plate. There are lefty-lefty issues. There are issues handling um, heat in the zone, certainly. Um, I, I personally would like to see that sneaky bunt come out a a little bit more often. Um, The the hard part here is going to be twofold. One, the value Varsho has brought defensively and as a base runner is pretty significant. Um, Most of the metrics we have available uh, grade him out as a very, very good left fielder and a capable center field fill-in. Again, if you're talking about him as a fourth outfielder, he's still going to see time there. Um, He's one of their better base runners. The bigger component though is that the Blue Jays are invested in this guy uh, longer term. It's not just about what he can contribute right now. He just turned 27 the other day. He's with this team through at least 2026 through the ARB process. Um, I, I think they're pretty invested in letting him work through stuff and trying to find the best version of him. Um, right now, 
you know, he he's he's actually trimmed his strikeout rate and upped his walk rate a little bit. It's just kind of the the hits aren't coming. So I I get the concern and, and I look, I, I agree with the actual call to action from this text that the Jays could use a, a right-handed hitting outfielder type to mix in a little bit more. Get Kiermaier an extra day off. Um, you know, have another righty option for a DH day uh, when, you know, if, you, if you're not thrilled with Kirk's bat or something like that or, or you know, whichever catcher it is uh, has been too overworked over the last stretch. And then, yes, to, to mix in and give Varsho, you know, the odd day off against a, a tough side of a platoon. So with you on that, I just don't think they're going to downgrade uh, Varsho to fourth outfielder type. It would be more about getting a more functional right-handed hitting bench piece. Uh, that's something Ben Nicholson-Smith, our last guest, has, has written about a little bit. And uh, let me tell you, coming out of the All-Star break, there's going to be a lot of trade talk on Jay's Talk Plus. It's the, like the best two weeks of the year in terms of uh, doing these shows because it's trade season. Um, Abrian Mississauga asks, it's well-documented that Kirk does better with less catching work, so should the Jays call up Heineman to take some workload and then DH Kirk some more? Um, Avery, this, so this is well-documented narratively, um, but the numbers don't entirely back it up. Kirk's best stretch this year actually at the plate was when he was playing almost every single day while Jansen was out. Um, I, I think maybe you could make the argument that that had a fatigue component, um, although he also then got 10 days down because he got hit on the hand, uh, so he's you know rested enough. I just don't know that there's a ton there. You you could argue to me that um, he does better with less catching work and I would get it because catcher is a very hard position. I would also understand if you said, hey, Kirk's better when he's in there every day because he's a, a rhythm hitter and things like that. The numbers don't really bear out either conclusion. I do think a third catcher on the roster is semi-interesting at some point this year just because they're not using the guys at the end of the bench anyway. Um, so why not? I, I'll also say, though, that defensively, um, Kirk's gotten pretty good. He's not very good at controlling the run game, but he grades out as one of the very best blockers and framers in all of baseball, given some of the stat cast metrics that we have. I, I don't know that you'd want to lose... Um, that component as well to try to get his back going. Just a lot of questions there with, with Kirk's bat right now. Anyway, Avery, it's a it's an interesting uh, it's an interesting question for sure. Uh, Larry from Keswick asks about a Matt chat a potential Matt Chapman extension. That's uh, I mean, look, I'm a fan of Matt Chapman. If you read Caitlin McGrath's great feature on him at the Athletic last week, uh, you almost surely came away from that a bigger fan of Matt Chapman. The Jays have a lot of money committed already next year. Now, Hyunjin Ryu's $20 million comes off the books. Brandon Bell, Kevin Kiermaier, Whit Merrifield, uh, all of those guys are in the final years of their contract. I kind of think the thinking has been with Matt Chapman and his time there is that the Jays would love for Aralvis Martinez or Addison Barger to be ready to, to take that position by the time next year rolls around. We'll see. Aravis Martinez has been one of the best hitters in minor league baseball since the month of April ended. Addison Barger's just getting back and playing now uh, after a long injury absence. I don't think you could safely, comfortably say either of those guys is going to be the guy next year. Um, I'm a big Matt Chapman fan. I think in terms of long-term, big long-term money that, that Matt Chapman can probably command in a very weak free agent class, it's like Shohei and then a huge gap. And then Chapman might be the top of the next year. Um, I don't know with, with the salary commitments that they already have um, that they will be and, and the salary commitments they have coming with extensions for a couple guys. I don't know if that's in the mix. If you could find a, a friendly enough number. I'd, I'd be, I love watching Matt Chapman 
play third base. I, I just don't know with how uh, the roster and the payroll structured for future years and where the prospects are um, that that's entirely realistic. Um, someone in North York. All right. Someone, uh, if the angels fall out of the race in the next few weeks, do you think Shohei can be had? And how would the Jays fit that bat in the lineup without disrupting too much? I'll tell you this. If the Jays could get Shohei, I don't care who it disrupts or how just get him in the lineup. I, I do not care. Um, now look, the, the angels have had some bum luck. Yes. Bum luck of late. Uh, Mike Trout broke a handmade bone in his hand. He's hit the IL. Anthony Rondone had to be pulled from a game yesterday with a leg injury. Shohei had to be pulled from a game because of a blister. So he's not going to pitch in the all-star game. Now. Um, I think the angels would have to fall quite far from the race to justify being sellers in Shohei's last year. And certainly to justify trading away Shohei Otani. I'll say this. If he is remotely available, you move heaven and earth to get him because he is the greatest player any of us will ever watch uh, play baseball. So someone in North York, I don't worry about disrupting anything. If it's a player of the caliber of Shohei, uh, you do you do what it takes and then you figure the rest out later. Uh, there are a couple other questions about batting order and lineup that, that we can potentially get to later in the week. I'll save those for then. Tonight, we have Jose Brios against Lance Lynn. Lance Lynn, who has been all over the place this season, an ERA up around six, but sometimes striking out 16 guys in a game. Uh, good luck figuring figuring him out from a kind of larger narrative arc perspective. Good luck figuring him out if you are the Toronto Blue Jays. Should be a fun one, though. Uh, shout out to our pal Julius Steiner of Rat Boys, who joined us earlier and will be down at that game. Thanks also to Joe Siddle and Ben Nicholson-Smith. If you want a little more Jays stuff, you got Blair and Barker 5-7 to seven today and Jays Talk post game. Jays Talk Plus, back tomorrow on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.